This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day Rajasaurus, a bunch of dinosaur news, and we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters Kyle, Brendan, and the Tolbert family. Thanks everyone. We really appreciate your support. Uh, If you'd like to join this group of awesome people, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. We have different reward tiers and we like to share some behind the scenes information when we can so check it out yeah so jumping right into the news first in the news we have a new ceratopsian named from mexico and it's the first new dinosaur name of the year at least that we've reported on this show which is exciting the name is quite a name and i'm gonna try (laughs) try really hard not to butcher it they did give a phonetics of it and it looks like yeah ceratops mudai you did it (laughs) it's not an easy one it's from that nahutl language which is the language that the aztec spoke i might not be pronouncing that right either we talked about that a little bit with like the coatl with the Quetzalcoatlus, and then there was another one. It seems like a pretty popular naming choice for some of the Mexican dinosaurs, and they are definitely very unique names. So, Yeueca is the Aztec word for ancient, and then obviously Ceratops is Greek for horned face, and then that Mudai, I think is how you'd say it. It's actually an acronym for Museo del... Desierto, which I think means desert museum. Pretty sure. Yeah. Anyway, it's kind of weird to try to pronounce a acronym, but that's how I think it goes. So it's taken the record for the southernmost name Centrosaurine also with its being named. Previously, it was known as like a three-letter acronym and then a three-digit number like a lot of the museum specimens are. And it's probably in the clad... Nasudoceratopsini that we talked about back in episode 108, and they break with the typical centrosaurines since they have less ornamentation on their frill, they have a smaller nasal horn, and they have larger horns above their eyes. And its beak really reminds me of a parrot because it's got that tall and short kind of look to it, and then the kind of little point at the end of it, at least on the top part of the beak. So it's like an ancient parrot. It really looks like it. And I think we talked about one that was even named after a parrot. But in any event, this one was relatively small for a centrosaurine. It was only about three meters or 10 feet long. 
And if you compare that to something like a Triceratops, it's really tiny. They didn't have much of the skull when they recovered it, but they did find a scapula, ilium, which is part of the hip, femur, tibia, and vertebra. But there was enough to give them a good idea of where it fits within Ceratopsidae. They got some good characteristic features from those bones. And in the paper where they describe Yeuecoceratops, they also talk about two other dinosaurs from Mexico, specifically two Ceratopsians, and they were all very different sizes, which possibly points out how they split up the habitat rather than just competing with each other all the time. And Yeuecoceratops was by far the smallest. <laughs> And speaking of ceratopsids, there's also a new article about a ceratopsid, which again is the family that includes triceratops, and specifically a tooth that they found in eastern North America from one of these horned dinosaurs. So this paper is not peer-reviewed, and that means that it's basically a preliminary report that hasn't gone through the scientific rigors yet. And usually we wouldn't even mention a pre-published study since they haven't been fully vetted yet, but this one seems pretty plausible. And the early returns <laughs> comments on the article seem pretty uh, positive, so I think it's worth mentioning. Basically, there have been a ton of ceratopsids found in North America in Laramidia, which is west of the western interior seaway that used to split North America in half. And there have been a couple of ceratopsids found in Asia as well. But eastern North America has been conspicuously missing ceratopsids from the fossil record. And we talked a little bit about migrations between Asia and Laramidia with respect to ankylosaurs a few weeks ago. And that even going between north and south Laramidia appeared to be more difficult than going between south Laramidia and Asia. So... You can't really think about continents in terms of how they're arranged now because, you know, there were lots of different geographical features and sea level changes and things that made it completely different in terms of where you could travel easily. Yeah, and I read a brief article this week about a lost continent that scientists may have found even. Yeah, we talked about that before. It's like it got shoved under by the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's pretty weird and there's a lot of... When you go back tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years, the Earth looked quite a bit different. So these researchers just found a ceratopsid tooth in northern Mississippi, or maybe I should say modern northern Mississippi, because back then it was like a coast. <laughs> and unfortunately, it appears to have been washed downstream by a river in the area. And the place where it came from is densely covered in vegetation, so it's not easy to go check for the rest of the animal. Just for your information, ceratopsids have unique teeth that include double roots, which is how they identified it so specifically and quickly. And the tooth was found in marine sediment, which is a little unusual, and it may mean that the ceratopsid could have died in Laramidia and then been washed east across this inland seaway, but it's really hard to say exactly what happened. So like I said, usually we don't even mention these pre-report studies, but it's pretty cool to see ceratopsians, or specifically ceratopsids, showing up in eastern North America. And hopefully, once the article gets peer-reviewed, we'll be able to shed even more light on what happened. 
And maybe they'll find some more of the skeleton, like a hole for L or something. That'd be nice, but it sounds hard. <laughs> yeah, too much vegetation and stuff in the way. <laughs> Next, Earth Archive shared a story of how dinosaur fossils with evidence of feathers or fluff change paleontology. And we, we talk a lot about this, but I like reading these kind of overviews. So... Archaeopteryx was described in 1861 based on a single feather, and then later a skeleton was found, later the same year actually, and it had teeth and a tail and hollow bones. And Compsognathus was discovered around the same time, though scientists didn't find any evidence of feathers. So Thomas Henry Huxley then suggested that Archaeopteryx was a missing link between birds and dinosaurs, and he thought that Compsognathus may have had feathers, even though, again, they weren't found. But there were a lot of people who disagreed with this. And it wasn't until 1969 when John Ostrom described Deinonychus, and he described it as agile and showed that dinosaurs could be related to birds and kicked off the dinosaur renaissance. And then in the 1980s, more people started to believe that some dinosaurs evolved into birds, and then the term non-avian dinosaur came about to differentiate birds from extinct birds slash dinosaurs. <laughs> Still, though, it wasn't until 1996 with Cynosaurotyrex, which was found in China with preserved feather impressions, not like modern feathers, but something similar, that this idea of feathered dinosaurs seemed possible. And since then, other feathered dinosaurs have been discovered. We've got Microraptor, Euteranus, Bapisaurus. And some were found not as closely related to birds, like Calindodromius or Cetacosaurus. But multiple feather types have been found. There's been fur-like filaments, downy feathers, hollow quills, tail fans. And feathers have been used to insulate or protect babies or be used for mating. And then later, they were used for gliding and flying. And it's still not clear when feathers first appeared or how they evolved in dinosaurs, but it is interesting to think of how our views of dinosaurs have changed and keep changing. Yeah, definitely. And the idea of them evolving for one purpose and then kind of being co-opted into flight has kind of gained a little bit more momentum as we found some of these early feathers that are more fluffy and downy, like that dinosaur tail that was an amber. Mm-hmm compared with, you know, the typical modern bird feather that's that asymmetrical stiff and it's got a pretty complex structure to it. Yeah. Next up, there's a new dinosaur track formation near Hudson's Hope in northern British Columbia. And I probably shouldn't say it's new since it's millions of years old. Yeah, no, no dinosaur <laughs> track formations are ever new. Yeah. And it was even discovered back in 2008, but they just announced it to the public last year and a new video came out about it is really the news but that doesn't sound nearly as good it's called the six peaks dinosaur track site and it's in the gething formation which is the lower cretaceous or about 115 to 117 million years ago they say in the video so so far they've uncovered 700 square meters which is about 7500 square feet and that's pretty large area for dinosaur tracks. A lot of times we just get a little slab that might only be a few square meters. And they plan to uncover another 3,500 square meters of dinosaur tracks, they think, which would be almost an acre, and it would make it the largest track site in North America. Nice. Yeah, they've found several sizes of ornithopod tracks, sauropod tracks, 
many different theropod tracks, including a large four-toed print, which they think might be a therizinosaur. I love therizinosaur. <laughs> yeah, they're really cool. So it's going to be really cool to see what kind of publications they make about this because that four-toed print they say hasn't been seen anywhere else in the world before. Hmm. So they need to really do some vetting before they figure out what it is. Crazy dinosaurs and their four toes. Yeah. Well, for theropods, that's really <laughs> unusual because dinos- theropods usually have the three toes. Mm-hmm. And they're expecting to spend a few more years excavating because, like I said, they've got about 3,000 more square meters to go through. And then they hope to build a protective building over the track site once the excavation is completed. And I hope that that's open to the public because that would be quite an awesome museum. Yeah, definitely. Sounds a lot like the one that is already open in Connecticut where you can go see the dinosaur tracks and they have kind of little bridges and stuff so you can go close to them. Another place we have to visit. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of dinosaur tracks, the Tumblr Ridge Dinosaur Discovery Gallery in British Columbia, Canada also offers tours of dinosaur tracks and fossils, according to the star. So Alberta is known for its dinosaurs, as we know, since we took a road trip there. But the only known brontosaur trackway in Canada is in British Columbia, as well as three tyrannosaur trackways. So in 2002, two local boys discovered dinosaur footprints in British Columbia, and since then they've gotten a lot of tourists. The tracks, not the boys. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to clarify. As of 2015, the area, which has track sites and more than 40 bone beds, was recognized as a UNESCO global geopark. And there's a lot of dinosaur fossils in the area, but it's hard to get to them because of the terrain. It's really rocky and bushy and a lot of beaver dams. It's a common problem. Not necessarily the beaver dams, but the the difficult-to-access nature of a lot of these sites. Yeah. But at the Dinosaur Discovery Center, you can take two tours to see dinosaur footprints. They're hikeable, and it says it takes a few hours, and I don't think it's a very easy hike necessarily for everybody, but it's doable. And there's also rotating exhibits if you don't want to take the hike. That's super cool. Mm -hmm. Next, the American Museum of Natural History shared a post celebrating Roy Chapman Andrews, Roy was born in 1880 and was supposedly the model for Indiana Jones, which I didn't realize. Yeah. Once you hear it, it kind of makes sense, but... Yeah. So from 1908 to 1913, Roy studied whales, and then from 1921 to 1930, he led the expeditions to the Gobi Desert in Mongolia and found a lot of dinosaur bones. He has a few named after him, such as Andrew Sarkis Mongoliensis. Then from 1935 to 1942, he was the director of the museum, and he was also a writer. Apparently, he was pretty prolific. And speaking of the American Museum of Natural History and their ties to Mongolia, (laughs) (laughs) the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs has added all of the American Museum of Natural History publications about dinosaurs from Mongolia to a list on their website. And they date all the way back to 1922, like... Roy Chapman Andrews when he was leading the expedition there. And there are quite a few from the 1920s and 30s that are really fun to read, and the full text is available. There isn't much until the 1990s through the present in between, so like there isn't much in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. But there is an interesting article from 1955 about protoceratops jaw musculature, (laughs) and it's kind of fun to see 
just how like much has changed in that field because back then they were basing it all on some simple muscle attachment points and some sketches. Nowadays we do all these computer models or we build things or 3D print them and all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty fun to look at some of the older versions of the science. The coolest thing about these is that they have the complete text available for all the articles. And a lot of times it's hard to find these older papers online, especially for free. So if you're really into say protoceratops or geology in Mongolia, it's definitely worth checking out because there's a lot of stuff there. And the ISMD's website is mongoliadinosaurs.org, which is the easiest place to get them. Next, Ogden Dinosaur Park in Utah is getting a Spinosaurus this spring, according to Standard Examiner. So Cliff Green, who's a paleo artist and sculptor, will be assembling and detailing the Spinosaurus. And it's being built to scale. It's going to be about 22 feet tall or 6.7 meters And park visitors will be able to watch some of the assembly and finishing work, and the plan is to have the Spinosaurus ready by summer, and it's going to be made of styrofoam and fiberglass. It costs $200,000 to make, and they've gotten grants and smaller donations to help cover the costs. Nice. I like when they make scale replicas of these really big dinosaurs. Yeah, I hope they have some videos to see the finishing work. Yeah. This past weekend, the Natural History Museum of Utah had its DinoFest 2017, <laughs> which I know we have at least one listener who went, I think. But anyway, if you did happen to make it, please let us know. Let us know what your favorite lectures were. The events apparently cost the price of admission to the museum, so that's pretty cool. It included a keynote from paleontologist Lindsay Zano about her and her team's recent finds from the late Cretaceous. There was also an open house of the Paleo Prep Lab, which I really wanted to see when we were there for SVP, but uh, I think they only had one tour and the line was too long when we were there. Yeah, it's a really cool museum. And the prep lab looks pretty huge. They have a really big collections area too. Mm-hmm. And you could also see part of the museum's fossil collection. And for those of you who were not able to make it, they posted a playlist on YouTube of all of their lectures. So we'll post a link and you can check them out for yourself. Next, the Johnson's Park dinosaur has been claimed, according to Journal Sentinel. And we've talked about this dinosaur before. It's this colorful T-Rex-type dinosaur at 16 feet tall, and it's been around since the 70s. And it watched over Johnson's Park in Wisconsin, although Garrett hadn't been there. Yeah, we should be clear that it's not a real like dinosaur replica. This is one of those very uh, artistic versions of a dinosaur yes (laughs) very tripod like too yeah so this man named chad covert paid 11 dollars for the dinosaur and plans to restore it and have it sit in his five acre yard and he plans to install a solar panel so its eyes light up like it apparently used to sounds spooky yeah (laughs) this dinosaur weighs thirteen thousand pounds and took seven men seven hours to remove from the park It was probably so heavy because its scales are made of concrete. Yeah, that would definitely do it. (laughs) Next in Montana, a couple siblings built a pair of dinosaurs out of snow, much lighter than concrete. Mm -hmm. So Vicki Brock from California has been visiting and taking care of her sister, Michelle LeBaire, for the past month in Montana. Michelle has lung cancer. And to help keep her sister's mind preoccupied, they decided to build this snow dinosaur. 
And actually, I think Vicky built it and Michelle watched. But anyway, it's a pair of sauropods. There's one adult and one baby. The larger one is six feet tall, so I can only imagine how long it took her to build that. But it looks really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Literally. (laughs) Cold as ice. (laughs) Uh, Next, a bride surprised her groom during their first look by showing up in a T-Rex costume. So the groom was waiting for her on a bridge, and then he had a good laugh when he saw his bride, and he managed to kiss her through the opening in the T-Rex neck, which was impressive. I didn't think there wasn't really an opening there. (laughs) Anyway, apparently this clip has over 2 million views already. Oh, and he unzips her so that they can have a proper kiss later. Yep, and get some regular pictures. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't show that part in the video. (laughs) I suppose. I just assumed. Hmm. In other T-Rex costume news, there's a new compilation of people in Jurassic World T-Rex costumes doing ridiculous things. And that's that one Sabrina was just talking about where it's inflatable and it's very vertical. (laughs) The most impressive one in this list is somebody riding a bucking horse at a rodeo in the costume. And they did a really good job. It was kind of funny watching them put on the suit and then get onto the horse while the suit is like inflating around them. (laughs) And then during the whole bucking crazy part of the rodeo, it kind of deflated the costume a little bit. So it must have been really hard to see out of because once it starts to deflate, the T-Rex head kind of collapses over your head and there's no window or anything to see out of. So it's kind of like doing a blindfolded, I imagine. (laughs) But they didn't fall off. They got pretty much all the way around the arena and then hopped off and ran away so it was pretty impressive and then there was also somebody feeding a 500 pound alligator inside its enclosure in the costume (laughs) yeah so the fake t-rex head that sticks up above your head while you're wearing it was even like it was making eye contact with the alligator while he was leaning over to feed it seems like a bad idea yeah and the guy feeding the alligator was just a couple feet away from it and they said that the alligator was used to humans because it's been in movies and things. It's like a, a pretty tame alligator. But it's kind of risky, you'd think, putting on some crazy costume and going near it. But A kind of aggressive looking costume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it didn't seem to care, though. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> and last in the news, I want to give a quick review of a new game called The Ark of Craft Dinosaurs. And if you're looking at that title and thinking, I wonder if that has anything to do with Ark Survival Evolved, yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a mobile game that was released for iOS and Android, and it's a pretty obvious knockoff of Ark Survival Evolved. I actually at first thought that it was made by the same people because the title is so similar and the gameplay is so similar, but it has nothing, you know, the developers are completely unrelated it has gotten a ton of downloads. According to IO Snoops, it was one of the most popular games on the iPhone over the last week, although it has been steeply dropping in popularity over the last few days. The description says, quote, large quantity of beings from the Jurassic period, Tyrannosaurus, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Gallimimus, Dilophosaurus, Pteranodon, Ankylosaurus, Compsognathus, Spinosaurus, plus bonus, Mammoth, Sabertooth, and others. Because <laughs> you know they all live together. Yeah. If you're counting, three of nine of those are dinosaurs that are from the Jurassic. So, not the best description. 
I'm not going to bother talking about the mammals, <laughs> which were obviously from millions and millions of years later. I've watched a couple of videos of people playing it, and there were some issues with hitboxes, which basically meant that, say, you were trying to chop at a tree, you had to aim a couple feet to the side of the tree for it to work because it was all skewed. And there were also a lot of people that were having issues with lag. But when I was playing it, I actually didn't have either of these problems on my year-old Nexus 6P. So I don't know. Maybe they updated the game or it was just people were using crappy phones. I don't know. The biggest difference from Ark Survival Evolved is that there are two modes to select when you start it. And there's basically easy and hard. So I picked easy because I'm tired of getting killed all the time in Survival Evolved. But easy in Ark of Craft actually means super easy. <laughs> so you can basically take down a Stegosaurus or Triceratops right when the game starts and tame it instantly after watching a few ads. <laughs> and then you're pretty much in indestructible after that. So Where's the fun in that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of trivial. The hard version, I'm sure, is a lot more... You gotta watch twice as many ads. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't tame anything that flies, which is by far the best thing to tame in Survival Evolved. And the game is plagued by constant ads. So I got ads when I was switching menus, when I was saving the game, when I was exiting the game, and just all the time while walking around or just generally playing the game. That's probably why there's been a steep drop. I think so. There are a lot of complaints about it. But I will say you can remove all the ads from the game for $1. And since it's like a third-person exploration, crafting, you know, kind of like Minecraft type game, $1 really isn't that expensive if you plan on playing the game for more than about 30 minutes. And I would definitely recommend it because it kind of ruins it. Are there other things to buy? Is it freemium? It is very freemium. So for me, it was fun for about 15 minutes and I had to spend about five of those minutes watching ads so that I could get food to feed my stegosaurus so it would be tamed and I could ride it. Mm. <laughs> and then there's a building mode that's somewhere between like survival evolved and Minecraft, but it really didn't draw me in. And I'd say that it's really a pretty subpar version of Ark Survival Evolved. So if you're into this kind of game, you should just play Ark Survival Evolved. But if you don't have a computer that can play Survival Evolved or you want to try out a simplified version, it's probably worth the free download, but I'm expecting you'll get bored with it really quickly because I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some people who enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention the funniest bug. So I wanted to see if the dinosaurs could swim because I tamed a stegosaurus and there was that article about stegosaurus swimming. So I walked into the water and you just walk onto the seafloor and you just walk around underwater. There's no like oxygen meter or anything. So you just stay underwater as long as you want walking around. <laughs> that was pretty funny. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions. 
and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Rajasaurus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon. So thanks, Cole. The name means princely lizard, and it was an abelosaurian theropod with an unusual head crest. They found a partial skeleton, part of the skull, backbone, hip bones, parts of the hind legs and, and tail, and it was described in August of 2003, but it was discovered by Suresh Srivastava of the Geological Survey of India between 1982 and 1984. It was excavated in the Kedah district of Gujarat, India. And in 1981, workers from a cement quarry showed geologists Duvedi and Mahobe ball-like structures that they'd found, which were dinosaur eggs, and beneath the eggs were fossils. And so between 1982 and 1984, Suresh Srivastava collected fossil fragments and worked on cleaning the bones with Mathur and Pant. Then nothing really happened for a few years, but they created this detailed map. Then in 2001, Sarano and Wilson started to reconstruct those bones and then formally described Rajasaurus in 2003. They had found the bones in the Geological Survey of India Museum and didn't realize its significance at first which this seems to happen a lot. However, <laughs> fossils described in 1923 may also belong to Rashasaurus. Charles Matley collected bones between 1917 and 1919, and at first, in 1921, he thought that all the bones he found were from a single specimen of a new theropod, though the ilia and sacrum were found in close approximation. Then in 1923, Matley interpreted some of these bones as part of a new stegosaur named Lametosaurus indicus. However, no stegosaur bones found in India shared derived characters with it, so in 1935, Chakravarti suggested that the ilia and sacrum, which are now lost unfortunately, were part of a theropod. It's unclear if the scutes are part of it, because they had found scutes along with the ilia, sacrum, and tibia, but they could also be part of titanosaurs that were found nearby. 
The type species of Rajasaurus is Rajasaurus narmadensis, and the species name means from the Narmada Valley. The Narmada River, where it was found, has also yielded other dinosaur bones, some found in the late 1800s, including Titanosaurus indicus. Rajasaurus has only been found in India, and at the time that it lived, India had recently moved away from Gondwana and started moving north. Rajasaurus is the first theropod found in India with preserved cranial and postcranial remains, part of the skull, which means that it can help scientists learn more about how abelosaurs evolved, since specimens described from India previously were mostly isolated bones. Rajasaurus is similar to other abelosaurids, including Majungasaurus from Madagascar and Carnotaurus from South America. They had a common ancestor. Compared to Tyrannosaurs, who dominated northern continents and lost ornamental structures on their heads, abelosaurs like Rajasaurus had more skull ornamentation as they became more advanced. Rajasaurus was found in the Lameda Formation, which have volcanic rocks, Deccan traps. So Rajasaurus and other sauropods from there were buried quickly by Deccan volcanic flows. Rajasaurus was about 25 to 29 and a half feet or 7.6 to 9 meters long. It had a low, rounded horn, which grew from its nasal bones, which was similar to Majungasaurus. And you can see a life-size fiberglass model of Rajasaurus at the Geological Survey of India's Lucknow Regional Office. In Adlab's Imajika, India, there's a Jurassic Ride Rajasaurus River Adventure, which is similar to the Jurassic Park ride at Universal. You can also see Rajasaurus in the game Jurassic Park Builder. You can acquire it in tournament mode, speaking of mobile games. Yep. And you can see Raja in Aladdin. That's not the same at all. (laughs) I think it's probably based on the same Latin root, though, right? Prince makes sense. (laughs) Anyway, so Rajasaurus was an abelosaurid, and abelosauridae means Abel's lizards. They are clad of ceratosaurian theropods that lived in the Jurassic and Cretaceous in Gondwana, which is Africa, South America, India, and Madagascar. Jose Bonaparte and Fernando Novas named Abelosauridae in 1985 when they described Abelosaurus, when they named that after Roberto Abel, who discovered Abelosaurus. They're bipedal and carnivorous, and they had short hind limbs and ornamentation on the skull bones. The skulls were generally tall and shallow, and they had four digits on their hands. They're also part of the group Ceratosaurus, which include Limosaurus and Ceratosaurus, and they had short arms in the Jurassic like Abelosaurus. And our fun fact for today that Sabrina goaded me into last week (laughs) is that there are 13 states and Washington, D.C. that have either a state dinosaur and or a dinosaur as the state fossil. So anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole thing. Yeah. The states with a state dinosaur or state fossil that is a dinosaur are Colorado, Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, Missouri, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. So if you live in a different state in the U.S., you should pick your favorite dinosaur and see if you can make it the state dinosaur or state fossil. Is that going to be one of our projects this year? I don't know. Because California isn't on that list. I know. I was thinking about that. (laughs) Especially if you're in a state that has a bunch of dinosaurs. Well, that's not like California. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There are a couple of states that have quite a few dinosaurs that aren't on this list, but 
I think it's funny that included in those 13 are Connecticut and Massachusetts, which both have Eobrontes, which is a likely theropod track as their state fossil. And Oklahoma is the only state that has a state dinosaur and a different dinosaur as its state fossil, which is why I had to phrase that so weird in the beginning, because they have Acrocanthosaurus and Saurophaganax. One is the state dinosaur, the other one is the state fossil. Everybody else either just has one or the other, or they picked the same one for both. And then both Wyoming and South Dakota claim Triceratops, but surprisingly no one has gone for T-Rex. Seems crazy, since that's almost everybody's favorite dinosaur. Maybe they thought too many would have T-Rex. Maybe. Maybe we should make that California state dinosaur. (laughs) So if you want to be pedantic, every state does technically have a state dinosaur, since every state has a state bird, (laughs) and birds are dinosaurs. And I was looking for other countries or maybe the provinces of Canada to see if anybody had official dinosaurs, but I couldn't find any official dinosaurs outside of the states in the U.S. Australia has them. I couldn't find it. There's only two. Oh, okay. Yeah, we talked about it like like a year ago or something. Hmm. They were going through the process of getting a second one for their, I think it's state. I forget which one. Cool. Yeah, how many? There's only a few states in Australia. I think there's like eight or so. I think it's six. Oh, okay. Yeah, we have a magnet on our fridge that has the different states that you stick together, but they keep falling off, so I haven't seen all of them together in a while. (laughs) (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to join our awesome growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.